Once forged in the fires of PR and journalism, Curtis Dewar and Corey Westbrook united to create C-Squared. Then I jumped on the bandwagon. I'm your host, Aaliyah, and this is Heavy Business, a podcast where we talk to music industry professionals and musicians and learn together about the music industry, marketing, and other tools that can help you promote the music you put so much effort into creating. Hello and welcome. This is Heavy Business. I'm Aaliyah. And I'm Curtis. And today we are speaking with Sophia Fraz of Exiled Hope. Thanks mm-hmm. for joining us on the podcast, Sophia. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. Of course, of course. Um, we uh, never have had, to my knowledge, at least in my years here, we have never had a music lawyer on the podcast. And you are not yet a lawyer, but would you be so kind as to give a brief summary of who you are, what you're studying, and how it applies to the realms of metal? So I'm Thea Fraz, the sole member of Exiled Hope, my solo project. Um, and I am currently studying law at George Mason University in Arlington, Virginia, um, with the intent of specializing in intellectual property law, uh, music law, entertainment law, all things related to that, so that I can become a music attorney and help other artists legally protect themselves so that they don't make the same mistakes that I've made and mistakes that I know that other artists I've collaborated with have made. So let's just kind of uh, start with now, why did you actually want to do this? To do music law or my project? Well, no, to do music law, because right now we're talking about the law aspect of things, right? Before we get into the Exiled Hopes stuff. What kind of, what was kind of like your journey to wanting to do law? Because it's kind of like most people into music don't really seem to be into the legal aspect and then they end up getting in hot water later. So explain for us, Sophie. So I've always kind of had two separate sides of myself. There's the really academic side and then the really artsy side. So it started in undergrad. Like I went, I went into undergrad, I went to Rollins College in Florida. Um, so I went into I went into undergrad thinking, oh, I'm gonna like be an economist or so, or do something with public policy because that was what I was really interested in, very interested in at the time. Um, and I didn't like receive a ton of encouragement or I don't want to say I didn't receive a ton of support for my music, but like I was always encouraged to treat it more as a hobby than something that I could take seriously. So I went into undergrad thinking that I was going to just take a strict like public policy, economics, sort of pathway. Um, But I really didn't want to leave behind my music and just treat that as a hobby. um, Because I was really starting to get interested in how policy and law interact with the entertainment industry. So I took a class in, I think, my second year of undergrad, it was intro to music business at Rollins College. And I learned all about how uh, how artists collect their royalties, how artists can uh, copyright their music, what artists need to do in order to collaborate effectively, how what you need to do to market yourself effectively. Um, and I started to realize that there were a lot more intersections between 
music and policy and business than I than I had realized previously. And I started to think maybe there is a viable way that I can combine these two interests and not be relegated to one and push the other to the side. And my professor encouraged me to consider becoming a music attorney because he felt that that would be a good um, combination of my two major interests at the time. So at first, when he told me, oh, you should be a music attorney, I was like, eh, I don't know about that because law just law, law seems very mechanical to most people and it certainly did to me law seemed very inflexible like you just you learn the law you apply it there's not a whole lot of room for creativity or strategy all of that is completely untrue but that was my perception at the time so um huh i said i have the same one so i totally understand well i'm here to change your mind today and that's kind of what we're talking about. So, um, yeah, it, eventually I warmed up to the idea after I did a little more research because I did think, well, this this could be a good opportunity and I don't want to completely shut it down. I want to at least have done my research before I decide against doing this. So I did my research um, and I eventually started to think, you know what, this this might be a home for me. This might be something that I, this might be the holy grail that I've been looking for, the perfect combination that I've been wanting to find since, I don't know, high school. So um, I started studying for the LSAT in 2020 when we got sent home from college and had nothing to do, classes were all online, so I decided to use that time to study for the LSAT, which is the entrance exam for that law schools need to see as part of your application process. And it was a very, very long, difficult process. Um, and it, I think I studied for like eight months for the LSAT and just took practice exam after practice exam after practice exam. And I took a prep course. I continued studying into the beginning of the fall semester in 2020 um and as i get as i got closer and closer to reaching my goal score on the lsat i finally decided hey i should just take the lsat in january i've been studying for months i think i can do it i think i know what i'm doing so i took it and i thought i'd bombed it because <laughs> i have not historically been a good test taker but a couple of weeks later i got my score and i did shockingly well better than i ever thought i could do and so i was like hey that's that's one hurdle that i finally got over on the law school journey this is starting to feel a little bit more real um so that's the story up until the beginning of 2021 um i hope that wasn't too rambling that, that was that's, perfect <laughs> that must have been so exciting you yeah. know it was exciting and back. also it was exciting and also very scary because you can only take the, the LSAT um I think five times I think they limit you whereas with the bar exam which is the exam that you have to take to become a licensed attorney after law school um you can take that as many times as you want in as many states as you want that doesn't matter <laughs> but the LSAT is kind of a one and done deal essentially like you only get your five chances i think according to my the research that i had done at the time so that was that was really high stakes i was having hence, to pick hence all the practice exams 
ahead of time. Was that the one that was that the one that I read about where you really got almost the perfect score, or was that something else? No, 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 no. I, I scored pretty high on the LSAT. I did not get near a perfect score on the LSAT. Don't cool. think that was what you were reading about. <laughs> cool. Okay. Either way, you did good. That's awesome. Okay. So um, you go to law school. Um, you found, you basically found your purpose in life. Well, maybe not your purpose in life, but you know what I mean. Um, so you found something that combines your interests. So now how, let's talk about exile to hope for a second, because we haven't really touched that part yet. Um, how does this kind of fit in with exiled hope? Cause I know it kind of does. Cause you got your Instagram, you got the legal name in there and you got exiled hope. How is this kind of morphing together? So as a solo artist, you don't really have a ton of other people to rely on. Like at least when you're in a band, you can rely on your other members to take care of some aspects of the project for you. When you're a solo artist, you don't have that. And I was quickly realizing the further I got, uh, as I got closer to releasing my first album, which I think I did in 2020, um, the closer I got to that, the more I realized there is a lot that I don't know about legally protecting my music, like with regards to copyrights and trademarks and stuff like that that I should probably know, that I should probably learn before I release music on my own, because I don't really have the safety net of a solid team behind me. And so that, and that was during the period that I was studying for the LSAT, I had already decided to um, try to become a music attorney at that point. And that's what really solidified the idea that, hey, I really need to start taking this seriously if I want to be taken seriously as an artist, if I want to be taken seriously as an attorney, I need to become my own attorney, essentially. Um, I need to, yeah, I mean, the, the idea behind it initially was to become my own attorney, to um, help myself and help other artists in my sphere with their careers legally. Um, so I think that covers that. That was the main goal behind, you know, combining Exiled Hope with the law stuff is I needed to learn how to keep my head above the water legally and collect all the royalties that I needed to collect through copyright law, essentially. Plus, since anybody can see you're a lawyer or a lawyer in training on your profile, they're not going to come around and try to fuck with you. Um, yeah. Like that label that we talked about earlier. Oh, yeah. Anyways, um, where am I going with this? So, Aaliyah was- Is that there. a story worth sharing on the podcast? The, the label? Well- Yeah. I don't want to go into specifics about what I told Sophia today right now, but I, I'm sure she could probably maybe give a general idea since I know she's experienced or knows some things about these. If she's willing, are you willing to say something general without going into anything too specific? Okay. I can say something general. I mean, there are a lot of people in the music industry who will act like they're your friends and who may actually be your friends and that can tend to catch you off guard when you're going into business with them. Because when you, you have to remember that when you're collaborating with someone, there is money at stake, your legal rights are at stake. And so you need to have those protected. But a lot of people don't think about that when they're dealing with their friends because they're like, oh, I don't want to make my friends sign a contract. I don't want to make, I don't want to make my friends deal with all of this paperwork. But I would argue that it's actually more important to make your friends do, deal with all this paperwork than even a total stranger who you don't know, because um, with your friends, 
they there's always the potential that they might take advantage of that relationship. They might take advantage of that trust. And I'm not trying to say this to be negative or to be pessimistic, but um, that's definitely something you need to be really concerned about when you're dealing with your friends again, or people who you think are your friends. Um, so anybody. Yeah, yeah, essentially. <laughs> but um, I, yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the danger with people that you know is so much greater because there's already that level of trust and you think, ah, they wouldn't screw me over. They wouldn't, they wouldn't do this. They're my friends. They would, they couldn't possibly think of doing this to me. Oh, they do. They do. <laughs> Believe me. Um, and I can't trust remember no one. That. Huh? Trust. Trust no yeah, one. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh. I'm not even sure if well, Aliyah and I have a contract for this. Especially when it comes to finances and stuff. I'm sorry, what did you say? I Chris? said I'm not even sure if we have a contract in regards to this. Oh, yeah, we do. We, we do. do. We do. <laughs> yeah, we, we do. do. You made we do. one. That's right. I because forgot. you knew this. Oh, yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. Well, and and I, might have, I might have already told you this, but um, something that really changed my perspective on having your friends sign a contract and make like formal legally binding agreements with you was that. I saw I saw another attorney post on Instagram a while back saying if your friends really care about your business, they will sign your contracts and they will want to help you legally protect yourself and your material that you're dealing with. So that just completely made me rethink the whole idea of how I how I do collaborations with people, essentially, yeah. like if there is money at stake, I will make them sign something. Makes sense. Me. Yeah, because yeah. then there's no room for disagreement or anything like that. And even if you don't take them to court, you could still burn a bridge. So, yeah, why not? And the whole goal behind transactional law, which is what I'm attempting to go into, is to prevent the shit from hitting the fan before yeah. it hits the fan. It's all about being proactive and about thinking about these things in advance mm -hmm. so that you don't have to scramble to put the pieces back together later. You're going to turn me into a fucking legal nerd here, aren't you? Because, like, <laughs> no, like, the way you explain it, it, all, it always sounds like it's interesting. But, like, most of the time, like, law is just, like, this dry subject. So, I don't know. Anyways, um, what were you going to say, Sophia? I, I was going to say that it's um, it's a lot more interesting in this case because you can relate it to something that you deal with all the time and when you're constantly in the thick of it like i am with exiled hope there is no getting around it you need to think about these things these are things that become pertinent to the tiny tiny little nuances of how you run your business as a solo artist it's just inescapable you have to think about it and so it becomes interesting in that sense because it affects it touches everything that you do for yourself and for other people Makes sense because like the other day when I showed you that thing that podcast playing like oh are they paying me I'm like I don't fucking know like why would I know that and then all of a sudden like oh wait that's something she needs to know isn't it I don't yeah. think about these things as the PR so and yeah. I know I'm being paid because I registered my music with ASCAP which is go. a performing rights organization that collects public performance royalties so so before we dig too deep into stuff because I'm probably going to be yakking for the next. 20, 25 minutes asking you questions, even though I talk to you all the time. Um, so let me just let me just first find out, well, not find out, but can you kind of state when someone should be seeking legal advice for their band? Should it be like at the beginning, after they put shit out? Like, 
explain? Because I mean, XL Hope is pretty new, yeah. fairly new, but I mean, you've been around for two years, but you know what I mean. Yeah, you should be seeking legal advice probably from the inception of your project. And you might think I'm biased because I'm studying law. No. <laughs> no. And um, this is, and I want to get clients, of course. Um, of course. But I, I really mean it when I say that a lot of the things that go wrong down the line with musical projects can be prevented from the start. If you have all of your contracts in place and all of your intellectual property protected, you want to do that from the beginning so that, again, you're not scrambling to figure it out when you're too deep in the project to change those things. Well, give us an example of what you mean, because like, OK, so someone just uploads their music to Bandcamp. Um, they want to put it out. Like, why the heck do they need something legal? at this point like you're you're a solo artist you don't have anyone else jack jack else that you need to deal with like why would someone like you need to get someone to help them with legal as the first thing so for example even when you're releasing your own music you still need to and, and you're not dealing with anyone else you still need to think about protecting your intellectual property that means registering a trademark, that means registering your copyrights. Um, so for instance, when I release music to all platforms or maybe even just on Bandcamp, I will always immediately after I release it, go register it with the US Copyright Office to make sure that um, I, in, in the event that I need to sue someone for copyright infringement because I'm not getting paid, because they're stealing my work, because they're profiting off of my work, I want to, well, you need do you have a record of registration with the US Copyright Office in order to sue someone? So you don't want to wait until last minute. Like technically, the minute, yes. <laughs> I just had a quick question about that because you just said something that that went against something that someone else had told me. Um, and I'm not I'm not saying you're wrong, but just clarify this for me. Yeah. Someone had, where did I learn this? I don't remember. And it could be different in the US and Canada, but Mm -hmm. I was told at one point by someone on good authority, and I wish I remember who it was, that you don't need to register a copyright because of the fact that all works are automatically copyright. I was about to say that. So, okay, cool. So all, so all works are automatically copyrighted. The minute you create them, you own copyright to that work. But if you want to sue someone, it is a prerequisite to have a registration, at least in process with the mm -hmm. Copyright Office, in order to bring a lawsuit because that functions as proof that the work is yours so you can't you do technically have copyright in a song the minute that you create it it's yours but you need that registration in order to actually take legal action against someone again well, i'm not a lawyer but this is to my understanding yeah granted we, we could preface this we could preface this whole thing with she's not a lawyer not yet <laughs> not le not legal advice, but she she has studied law. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I did not know any of that. Aaliyah, do you have a question before I ask the next one? Well, are we going to dive into ASCAP and BMI next? Probably. That's probably what I'm curious to hear about. I don't know if that's what you were going to ask. Chris. It was not, but go ahead. Um. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a specific question about that, but can you just kind of brief us on the basics of? ASCAP and BMI and why people should be registering with them. Yeah, absolutely. So when you create a song, 
you are entitled to many different kinds of royalties depending on how that song is used. So, for example, if someone downloads a copy of your song from iTunes or from Bandcamp, you get mechanical royalties from that. When someone streams your music on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, you're getting digital royalties from that. And when someone is playing it on the radio or on a podcast, like you were telling me earlier, my music was being played on a podcast, you receive public performance royalties from that public performance of that work. So you want to register your music with ASCAP or BMI because ASCAP and BMI collect those public performance royalties. I had a friend recently who was um, confused and he was telling me that he has all of these different streams from his music, but he's making a lot less in royalties than he thinks he should be because he's only collecting the mechanical royalties that DistroKid collects from the master track. Um, but he's not, but because he's not registered with ASCAP or BMI or whatever the equivalent of those organizations is in other countries, he is not getting the public performance royalties that he could be getting when his song is being played on the radio on a podcast or otherwise just played for a public audience in a public space. Okay. Um, Aliyah, did you have a follow-up to that before I ask my next one? Yeah. Okay. So how do those get paid out? Is that just something that gets set up when you make an account and register everything? Or, or do you have to go through some other steps to actually get it paid out? How does it work? So you have to sign up for one of them. You can't sign up for both. You have to become a member of either ASCAP or BMI, and you have to upload metadata of your song, like the ISRC code, the name of the song, who the collaborators are on the song. You have to give them enough data so that they can, I guess, use their algorithm to pinpoint where that song is being played, when it's being used, so that they can collect royalties from that song. And the interesting thing about this is that um, a lot of organizations that use music publicly, like, I don't know, for example, a grocery store or a restaurant, all grocery stores or restaurants or establishments that play music will need to get a blanket license from ASCAP and BMI in order to play music legally on their premises um, so that the artists are getting paid for the music that's being streamed. So those organizations will purchase that blanket license and the money from that blanket license, I, if I remember correctly, goes toward paying the artists whose songs are streamed when that blanket license is used. Cool. Okay. That's how that works. So I wanted to ask just really quickly in regards to this. So you're saying that if they're not registered, um, like for example, like your friend, so it's impossible for them to get those other royalties period, correct? Am I understanding this right? To my knowledge, yes. Okay, so is that, I guess that's partly why a lot of times people are bitching about their stream payouts and other yeah, people are yeah, saying exactly. it's fine. Okay, so the moral of the story is you need to register in whatever country you are. Okay. Yeah, cool. and there are a lot of different kinds of royalties and there are all kinds of different processes that you have to go through, different organizations that collect different kinds of royalties. Sound Exchange is one that people should probably know about because Sound Exchange is what's collecting all your Spotify royalties. Mm -hmm. um, they're collecting all of the digital streaming royalties that ASCAP doesn't collect and that DistroKid may not collect. So you need to register your music with Sound Exchange in order to get those digital performs those digital royalties 
um, that you may be missing out on if you don't. Okay, so just to okay, so I'm going to be like a dickhead musician for a minute here, uh, talking <laughs> talking to the lawyer here. So um, I'm going to release my music, but I I don't want to spend the two hundred three hundred dollars for a lawyer um, because I'm probably only going to be making that anyways on my first couple EPs or whatever, if that. So uh, why should I take the time to hire a lawyer to do something like this? So you don't actually need to hire a lawyer to register your music with ASCAP and yeah. BMI or to copyright it. I mean, there is a fee associated with registering at the copyright office, but it's relatively small. It's smaller than um, what you would pay a lawyer to do it for you. So that is something you can do yourself. Um, we rarely, the firm that I'm interning at rarely gets clients asking us to do that for them. Um, so that is something you can do yourself. And I think it's it's not that much more work. It's not that much more of an investment than you would think it is. I don't know if that makes sense. It 100% it makes sense. And um, so what would you say are the fundamental things that a band should get a lawyer to check over for? I'm assuming they would ask these questions or you guys just like, I don't know how this works. So kind of explain it. Yeah, so at the firm that I'm interning at, um, we mostly get people asking us to draft contracts or to review their contracts for them mm -hmm. because that is something that you probably can't do yourself to make you would want to get an attorney to review your contracts to make sure that they're legally compliant and to make sure that you're getting the best deal possible if you're dealing with someone else and their contract that their legal that their legal team drafted for the project so Intellectual property protection with the exclusion of trademarks, that's a whole other story. Um, royalty collection and copyright protection are things that you can do yourself. You probably do not want to sign a contract without having an attorney review it. You probably don't want to draft your own contracts without an attorney. And you definitely do not want to register your trademarks without an attorney. Okay, so the lawyer would kind of walk them through all this stuff then, or they should know all this beforehand, or what? Um, lawyer, the lawyer would probably ask them questions in the initial consultation about what their goals for the project are, what they need to have protected. It's, it's the lawyer's job to ask the right questions to coax the information out of the client. It's not really the client's job to go in and know all of this beforehand, because again, most artists don't know that these are things you need to do. Yep. So, um, it's it's the attorney's responsibility to make sure that they ask the right questions to get the right information so that they can serve the client in the best way that they need. Cool. Okay, Aaliyah, did you have a follow-up on that? No? Okay, so um, one more kind of in this general area here type of thing. So let me ask you this. So should they be like, okay, so like, band names and shit, because this always comes up. I don't know if you know anything about this or not, but um, how could you, like, what would you need, what would be the steps you would need to take to make sure that your band name uh, was secured? Because a lot of bands have, will have the same name, right? So is there anything that bands should know about for that? So this is something that I'm less familiar with. I Fair. can give you my experiences with it and sure. the things I know about it. Again, this is absolutely not legal advice. Take this of course. with you. Of course. Um, to my understanding, trademark law is only national, so you can, 
so if you have a trademark registered in the United States, another band could potentially use your name if they're in another country. Fucking assholes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, I, I have another friend who has who has his band name and he's he's dealing with an artist in another country who's using that name, who is trying to, I guess, present himself as the major force behind that band name and that branding, I guess. And the thing about that is that if he was if they were both in the same country, they would have a legitimate trademark battle over that, I would assume. But because they're both in different countries, one of them can have claim to the to the name in one country and the other can have the claim to the name in their other country. So there's not much to fight over, essentially. Um, that that is to say, I'm I'm assuming everyone knows this because I'm studying this, but this is probably not common knowledge again. A, a trademark is what you would use to protect a band name. A copyright is what you would use to protect the products of that band name and that brand. This is a common misunderstood term. I know that, yes. so I don't think that's yeah, true. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's true that most people know it in actual fact, but I could be wrong. Yeah, um, they're, they are commonly confused. Tra uh, trademarks protect the brand, the logo, the actual umbrella that covers all of the products that are created by that brand, which are then protected by copyright. Cool. Okay, so um, I want to talk about Exiled Hope for a bit, unless Aaliyah has more legal stuff she wants to go over. Let's go. Oh, actually, I do have one last legal thing. One last legal thing. Um, okay, so what are things that a band should make sure are trademarked or copyrighted? I would say that you want to trademark your band name, potentially. Um even if you're going to even if you're you know going international and you know music is a very international thing i i would probably play it on the safe side and trademark your band name in the united states or wherever you are um, where that kind of law applies and you would want to copyright all of your music all of your um, albums your song titles um, and anything that you create that is part of your brand you would want to copyright that. So like merch and stuff like that too, you're saying? Yes, yes. Okay, cool. So I'm probably gonna be getting asking way too many questions going way over the time if I get into this any further. So let's go on to Exiled Hope. Um, and I'll just ask you these questions privately if you're willing to answer them for me. So um, let's talk about your project, Exiled Hope. So that's how I first met you a week or two ago. Um, give the background on Exiled Hope and then I'll fire away some questions at you. So in college, I was in a band that was probably kind of an alt-rock or indie rock band called Figures. It was with three other members, and we would practice together on the weekends. And I was just kind of along for the ride as a guitarist and backing vocalist. I didn't have a huge creative, I didn't have a huge amount of creative input in the band. I was just kind of there, and we were just kind of jamming together in the music building on the weekends. It, we weren't taking it super seriously, but we did want to work up to actually releasing music under the name. And the issues that we ran into were, of course, scheduling. We were you know, all in college and we had different schedules, so it was difficult for us to find time to practice and compose together um, with all of our schedules conflicting. Um, the other issues that I personally ran into was that I didn't 
feel like my input was extremely valuable to the direction of the band. It was kind of the keyboardist band and it wasn't really it wasn't something that I had a huge stake in or a huge amount of input in. And that didn't really bother me because I did want this to be more of a collaborative effort and I didn't just I didn't want it to just be me, me, me. Um, but I did feel like I needed an outlet for creating the music that I wanted to make that wasn't strictly within the purview of figures. That's that was the band's name. Um, so I started just playing with GarageBand. I had GarageBand and Logic at the time. I was very low budget, um, just playing around with plugging my guitar into a USB port and um, creating my own riffs and uh, creating my own keyboard lines with the very limited knowledge that I had of piano and my still limited knowledge. <laughs> um, so I just I just started trying to make things that sounded vaguely like stuff that I would have wanted to listen to or create on my own that was separate from the style that Figures was playing. And that's kind of how Exile Hope developed out of my wanting to have my own outlet that wasn't touched by any other kinds of input and that wouldn't really be I don't want to say corrupted, but that would that wouldn't be swayed by anyone else's input. And I know that that probably that probably makes me sound very, uh, you know, self-centered. I guess but, I don't think so. No, nope. yeah, I feel like there are a lot of things that you can't do in a band that you can do as a solo artist, obviously. And so having that solo outlet even though at the time I didn't really have the skills to make everything I wanted to make, it was still important that I learned how to do things through trial and error and that I learned to develop these skills and learn how to use these tools so that I could eventually learn to make what I wanted to make and to express myself how I wanted to express myself. That makes sense 100% to me. Um, can you go over the concept briefly of Exile Hope if you're willing to? Yes. So the concept of Exiled Hope is that I love concept albums. So um, I'm a huge nerd for Avantasia and all of their concept albums. I never that guessed. Was... I never guessed. <laughs> that was really the, um, that, that was what made me start thinking, oh, maybe this should be actually a conceptual project and not just me trying to be a Nightwish slash Camelot slash Demi Borgir kind of copy. Um, so that that's sort of what I, I feel like all great power metal and all great symphonic metal needs to have a story behind it or maybe like not necessarily a story but some sort of overarching like theme. idea yeah exactly and so I I started I started thinking huh all of these great albums that I love and all of these great artists that I'm kind of trying to emulate with this style they all have these really great, really solid concept albums, and it's something that listeners can really relate to, and it's something that differentiates those bands from others in their genre. If you can create this mythology, create this lore, create this overarching story, this philosophy, that's what's really going to separate you from other bands in your, in your style, in your corner. Um, so I thought, oh, it would be really fun to 
turn this into sort of a metal opera sort of thing. I was really into Avantage's metal opera albums at the time. So I was like, oh, this could actually be really fun. And this is something that really, that feels really me, that feels very authentic to my interests as a musician. So the concept al the concept started with, it's kind of an overarching metaphor for my time in college, essentially. Um, the general theme of the first album and probably the second and upcoming third album is about searching for yourself in the midst of filtering through all of the noise that's around you and discovering what is really true to yourself, what your values are, what you feel is your most authentic expression of yourself in the midst of all this noise and static that's around you, whether it comes from inside you and your own self-doubts or whether it comes from outside, from, from the external world, from external sources, from antagonists that are trying to push you down, put you in a box and make you into something that you're not. That is, without getting into the really complicated, like actual storylines behind the music, that's essentially what every album boils down to, but it tends to manifest in different ways depending on the nuances of the particular story that's being told on one of the albums. Fair enough. Um, Aaliyah, were you gonna say something? No. Okay, cool, thought you were. Um, okay, so how do, I want, how do I want to go about this here? So talk about your upcoming song, I guess, because I think we're running out of time here. So we might as well talk about your upcoming track, if you're willing to, for the next couple of minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Do you have anything in particular that you want to know about? Or... Well, how about this? So when you go over the name of it, the release date, um, maybe a little bit of the concept, that kind of thing, if possible. Like, I mean, the, just for background, for anybody listening, the reason why I met Sophia is because she did this post about her upcoming song. And basically, she did this really good caption about it. And then it got me curious, ask, and she didn't put a date when it was being released. And that caused me to reach out to her and say, when the fuck is this being released? And she did that. So that way people would interact. She basically told me later. So it worked. Um, and I'd been following her for a year. And I, I honestly have to be honest, I wasn't curious until I saw that caption. Uh, so if you can kind of go over that kind of stuff, that would be very cool. So the summoning is the first song that I started recording for the album, like two years ago. That's a whole that's a whole other story. I started this two years ago, this album. Um, so The Summoning was the first song and it's essentially, it sets the tone for the album and that it's a lot heavier and darker, both in terms of storyline and in terms of musical style. It's very, it leans very heavy into black metal, but also into classical elements. So it's kind of like a flesh god apocalypse style song, I would say. Like that's probably the closest approximation I could make for it. It's like Flesh God Apocalypse meets Camelot, essentially. So the idea behind the song was to set the tone for what the character wants, what the character's goals are, what his fears are, what he's essentially up against throughout the story of the album. He's dealing with these monsters that are both inside him and around him, and he's trying to, and he's trying to confront them and say, hey, what do you want from me? What are you trying to get me to do? And how am I going to fight you off, essentially? So that's, that's um, without, again, without getting into the really detailed lore aspects of the album, that is what 
that's the main concept behind the single. It's to set that heavy, dark tone and introduce the main conflict in the story. Cool. And when's it coming out? August 4th. And you August. can pre-save it on Spotify and pre-order it from my Bandcamp page. Cool. And you also have another song that you just released recently too, Blood of the Ancients, that's uh, also on Spotify and Bandcamp and you can order. And you also got t-shirts. Yes, essentially. Yep. Especially yep. I'm wearing this. I'm wearing my new t-shirt now that I um, just received from my uh, merch page. Cool. We'll make sure to have the links in there. Uh, Aaliyah, do we have any other questions that we want to go over with her? Well, that's a, it was an interesting way that you framed it. You left out a piece of information to get people to interact with it. It's like the next level of engagement bait that people haven't seemed to haven't quite caught on to yet, but they'll probably catch on to it soon. Uh, actually, my band accidentally did this on our TikTok, that one TikTok <laughs> uh, that really took off. We oh. forgot to, I forgot to put the song title. Oh, yeah. So there's like 1,500 comments saying, what's the song title? And I'm like, and then after that, I was like, oh, no, I got to remember to put the song title in. And then after that, I was like, wait, maybe I shouldn't remember to put the song title in nope. because that actually, it caused I've, more interaction. I've seen more people. Yeah, I've seen more people start to do that where they'll they'll like intentionally misspell a word or something or they'll mm -hmm. like leave a word out and people will comment going, you misspelled this word, you didn't say this, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, thank you for all the comments. <laughs> yes, I've thought about that before. I've seen those things happen and I'm like, come on, a bunch of people saw this to to like approve it because I've seen it from like big companies, right? Yep, yep. 100%. It has to be intentional. Yep. Because people want to will jump to correct you, so yeah. mm -hmm. anyway, she did a great. She did a great job on her caption, and then I was just like, "Now I've been talking to her since, and now now we're working with her." So good job, Sophia. You lured you. me in. <laughs> it worked successfully. Yep. Yes. Um, one final question, actually, I have before we wrap up: Is there anything else that uh, you wanted to cover that we didn't, other than the new single and the merch or anything? I think that is pretty much it. Again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm just a law student. I'm an intern at a law firm. There is a good chance that I don't know all of what I'm saying. So please talk with your actual attorney instead of just listening to me <laughs> for now until I am qualified to be your attorney. Fair enough. And listen to Exiled Hope if you haven't already. Thank you. Definitely. Well, everyone listening, Thank you for listening. And until next time, make like a bull and throw those horns up. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word by following or subscribing to us, recommending it to your friends, or leaving us a review on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening to Heavy Business, brought to you by C-Squared Music.